right? DeFi markets performed flawlessly, transparent, mm -hmm. on chain. It all worked. We we did the same liquidations right. that the CeFi lenders did, except DeFi didn't screw anyone over. It actually right. performed exactly as it right. was supposed to. It's because our regulations are based in smart contracts. So the SEC and other regulators could view DeFi as part of the solution here. Hey, Bankless Nation, happy Friday morning and happy fourth week of June. This is the last week of June. We got a lot to cover here, David. I'm fresh back from last week. I did get COVID last week. I went Not to the beach, so had some fun, but also got COVID. So I'm a little bit under the weather. So uh, I'll try to meet the coughs, David. But how are you doing, man? Your new place looks great. Yeah, thanks, my man. Doesn't the, doesn't the brick look pretty good? I got some big plans for what's going on behind me in the future. Yeah, what are you thinking? Some like little NFTs? Uh, I got a little bit of NFTs, little... but uh, more than that, more than that, Bankless Studio. Uh, the plans for Bankless Studio is underway. More on that Ooh. later in the show. All right, well, so we'll save that to the tease at the end. But we got some hot things to cover, some big things to cover. I came back and I, I feel like I'm, you know, I left kind of shaking my head a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I came back and I'm just like still shaking my head. Like, <laughs> what a mess. Last right. week was a complete mess again. I think the theme of the episode today, the roll up today is crypto contagion. Mm -hmm. Once, Once again, again. It's, it's continuing to propagate. But we've got a few stories we're, uh, we're going to chase down. What's the first one, David? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to recap the dust that is settling around the three hours capital meltdown. We've done this a few times before already, and the dust continues to settle. We are finally starting to get some clarity, although there's still much more clarity needed. So we're gonna go through all of what it, where we is beginning to shake out as the final part of the story of three hours capital. And then that bleeds right into the story of BlockFi. Again, the same stories that we've been covering, but because three hours capital was related to BlockFi, uh, we gotta cover the settling of the BlockFi issue as well. Uh, BlockFi, where it was previously raising at basically a $5 billion valuation about a year ago, is now being valued between $25 and $50 million. Those are some, there's differences between those bad. numbers. That's down bad. Uh, but then that bleeds right into the third big story of the week, which is that Grayscale is suing the SEC. And all of these stories are related to each other. One just like flows right into the other, which brings us back to like the theme of this whole entire market, which is contagion, contagion, contagion. And it really, Ryan, it all kind of comes down to the GBTC discount. And so we're gonna walk the viewers, the listeners through, like how all of these things are tied together, how one rogue venture fund that everyone thought was Chad's was connected to this GBTC Grayscale Trust, which is an inferior product as a result of the SEC regulation. Uh, whose fault is the bear market? Well, it's a lot of people's fault, but we can definitely name some names. And so we're gonna cover all those stories. All right, we're going to be naming names for you. Is that, is that what you want in the <laughs> yeah, bear market, name guys, names. for us to talk about <laughs> things that people did that were just straight up dumb? Because <laughs> that's what we're going to do in today's episode. I think we have to camp on that to learn from our mistakes, hopefully. All right, David, let's get on the markets report. So what are we looking at with Bitcoin price this week? We're down, it looks like. Yeah, it's one of those weeks like, yeah, it's down every single week, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> started the week at $20,500. We are currently at $19,000. There's a few dollars above $19,000, uh, down 7% on the week oof that does not feel good to be below 20k that's definitely bear market territory it's getting chilly down here in the cold how about eth what are we looking at on the seven day here yeah ether started the week at eleven hundred dollars we are currently at one thousand twenty six dollars down six point seven percent on the week oof 
flirting with that triple digit I, I saw I saw triple digits uh, this morning. Yeah, we, we got this morning. Triple, you saw yeah. Tri- yeah, yeah, I, I saw nine 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 point nine nine. I was like, wow, that's a number. That sucks. That's a bad number, huh? <laughs> you, you think, <laughs> Not for buying. How deep, do, how deep is the cut here? How deep are we going? <laughs> oh, God. You want to make some calls? <laughs> I mean, I, I think we're going to have plenty of three-digit buying opportunities. Maybe not plenty, but like there will be numerous buying opportunities. There were three times I remember being able to buy $80 Ether in 2018 to 2020. Uh, this is the second time that I've seen triple-digit ETH. So count them, like two times. There you go, guys. It's look, if you're bullish on the space as we are, and if you're as bullish as on ETH and some of these other assets as we are, this is an incredible opportunity. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to go up overnight, right. but I am saying that probably over the next weeks to months, maybe years, I don't know, will probably be one of the few triple right. buying ETH opportunities, if not the last one we ever see. Um, but who knows? I mean, quote me quote me on that later after I'm right. Don't quote me on that right now <laughs> during yet, the bear market. <laughs> uh, forget I said that during the bear market. ETH to Bitcoin, the ratio, what are we looking at this week, David? Uh, it's basically flat. We we're at 0.054. That's where we were last week, so no significant change. Not going down though. And total crypto market cap, we down too? We're down on that one. Yeah, we are at a clean $900 billion in crypto market cap, down $50 billion in the last week. $50 billion in crypto market cap used to be noise. That's not noise anymore. We lose $50 billion in the market cap. That's the, what is that? That's two and a half percent. Do you know, it's still funny though. Less than a trillion dollars. That's 5%. That's 5%. But less than a trillion dollars, right? It's like, um, you know, the dot com boom got to like 3 trillion Mm -hmm. in the big dot com boom. And if you do do like inflation adjusted, that's more like 10 trillion. So, like, you know, crypto did what? 2 trillion, 3 trillion? 3.5 trillion. Not that big compared to like the internet or the dot com boom. 3 trillion. Yeah, exactly. Now we're now we're back under a trillion dollars. But let's set some context here because mm-hmm. David, I know we're going to do a lot of uh, macro episodes and I think it's worth talking about uh, macro for a minute. Um, our friend uh, Kyla this week um, me- mentioned in her newsletter a meeting that happened at the ECB, uh, the European Central Bankers, where all of the central bankers got together and they had a big conversation. And essentially, as Kyla says, they were like, wow, the, the entire economic regime is shifting from low inflation to whatever this is. Whatever this is, is definitely high inflation, new, parada- new paradigm. And Jerome Powell was actually quoted as saying, we understand better how little we understand about inflation. What? This is what Jerome Powell says. And it's kind of head smacking, right? Because you're just like, you have one job, Jerome Powell. <laughs> and that is to like, look at the historical context for this thing. He said that out loud? Inflation. <laughs> Pretty sure he did, David. And so um, your job is to literally understand what inflation is. This should have caught no one by surprise. In fact, there's a lot of things that the Fed could be doing. That's not to say, though, David, that um, like the Fed and Powell are the only ones to blame here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you were like all of the blame going around for inflation. People are like, oh, it's Trump. Other people are like, oh, it's Biden. They'd be like, oh, it's, you know, the war Russia and Ukraine. It's Putin's fault. Everyone wants to blame someone. And the reality is like, yes to all of the above right it's all of their fault it's like there's a lot of collective fault this was a a post that i read this week that lists 15 things that inflation can be blamed on and justifiable reasons for each number one covid number two congress number three president biden the cares act one number four president 
uh, Trump in the CARES Act one and two. Number five, consumers who overspent. Number six, consumers who shifted to goods part of covid number seven the russian inflation of ukraine (laughs) number eight just in time delivery supply chains number nine fed monetary policy number 10 wages and unemployment insurance number 11 home shortages number 12 semiconductors automobiles price go up number 13 corporate profit seeking number 14 tax cuts and infrastructure on number 15 the author of this post even added crypto why is it our fault a little bit funny oh they just said um a lot of people made a lot of money on crypto and then they bought things in crypto and drove well, up the prices of other things. But yeah, but that's I would true say about the equities market too. There was yeah. more money made in the equities market than crypto. I don't feel I totally, at blame totally at all. <laughs> well, I'll take one fifteenth of the blame, I guess. <laughs> Whatever. But like the the point here is the broader point is it's not any one thing, David. Right. It's like right. a whole bunch of things that are causing like where we are right now with inflation. And it mm-hmm. seems like the central bankers are still not quite sure what to do with it all. Right, right. I, I would summarize between all of those things, it really boils down to globalization uh, because globalization made a, a pandemic global very, very quickly. It also is responsible for our, our, our supply chains, our very supp- uh, fragile supply chains. Uh, and then also like a Russian invasion of Ukraine that also has uh, global impacts just because we have a global network. So like we're super global. So like, like I think like five to seven of the, those things could fall under the globalization category. And I think also five to seven of those things could fall under the uh, fiscal irresponsibility category. Money so I printing will, category. M- money printing, like, uh, you know, payments for infrastructure that like is probably, like there's a bunch of corruption in the United States, like, you know, no surprise there. Uh, so like between global globalization and ir- like fiscal irresponsibility, I think is like two thirds of the blame, I would say, uh, yeah. for all these And things. then you got a war. You know, no, war. well, that's globalization, though, right? Because then the war, uh, like, impacts supply chains, impacts oil, blah, 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 blah. Sure, sure. So there's the bumper sticker: globalization, right. money printing, right. and war caused caused inflation. And and, do, and crypto. And, and those crypto bros. Crypto. Don't forget about <laughs> crypto. It's Bitcoin's fault. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know what? I I read a great, probably the best thing article I read this week was actually uh, a letter from Dan. Uh, mm-hmm. at Pantera, and we've had Dan on the podcast in the past. Um, he's really good from a macro perspective in particular. And um, he was talking about the big blame. Maybe he would say like, more, more like, hmm, more like two thirds itself is, is actually on Fed policy. So he would, he would wait what you just said, and he would probably agree, but I think he would weight things more towards Fed policy decisions, at least exacerbating all of the inflation that we were about to have. And two things, the Fed did wrong. Powell, for some reason, and the Fed you know, like, and central bankers around the world screwed this up in a big way. Number one, they kept rates low for too long. We yep. should have been raising rates a year ago, David. Transit that was clear. Inflation. Right? We went to transitory inflation. So it's number one. That's that's happened at times in the past, but like that's 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 one issue. But the second issue is even bigger. They've been manipulating the bond market. Okay, first time in history this has happened. If you look at some of these graphs from the Pantera um, uh, re- like report, you can see, look what the Fed bought, $3.1 trillion in bonds, like buying a whole bunch of mortgages. And Dan makes the argument that like, when you have an interest rate of 2.3% in the US, and when uh, home prices are raising, are increasing by 20% year over year, the Fed is basically daring you not to buy a house. 
In fact, mm. don't just buy one house. Buy two or three if buy you can. five houses. Because it's yeah. all cheap money that the Fed is effectively giving you. So by manipulating the bond market and stepping in on the housing side of things and the mortgage side of things, the Fed just pumped this thing up way beyond levels that we've ever seen, probably historically, right? And so, um, yeah, we've got a lot of overvaluation to get through. And Dan actually says he doesn't think that this is going to be fixed until a few things happen. One, housing inflation goes negative, either that or unemployment rate goes up by 2%, so we're in a recession, that possibly, or core CPI gets closer to 2.5%. Core CPI is not total CPI, it's it's uh, CPI less uh, energy and, and food, and it's about 6% in the US. Uh, or the Fed has unwound the majority of all of the mortgage manipulation that it's been doing. And important thing to like take a look at is, um, this is kind of a US problem, all right? The average core inflation across our peers, Japan is 0.8%, France is 3.2%, Canada 5.7%, Germany 3.8%, the average 3.4%, the US is 6%. No coincidence decision. that we also printed the most amount of money for stimmy, stimmy checks. We also gave out the exactly. more, most amount in like unemployment and stimulus checks. And like surprise, surprise, we also have the highest inflation. 100%. So this has to unwind, has to make its way out of, the, you know, through the system. Uh, and uh, you have to wonder too, this is uh, something that you picked out this week. Mm -hmm. The Wall Street Journal is talking about this in a different way than they've been talking right. about it. What's, what are we looking at here? Yeah, they give that headline, rising interest rates will crush the federal budget. And like the, the, the conversation here is that if we ri raise interest rates and send our economy into an, uh, a recession, not only is that a recession for the American, uh, American economy, our own government can't pay its own debts. And so like the federal, the federal government is too indebted to suffer high interest rates. But also if we, so simultaneously that's a problem. And then if we send our own economy into a recession, where's all the tax money going to come from to pay off the debts? So like in 2022, you know like how much like the IRS, the treasury is gonna receive in capital gains tax in 2022? Like nothing, basically. A lot less. No one's yeah. making capital gains. It's going basically to zero. So like they're not making any money on capital gains. Uh, they're going to be able to make less money on just like other things just because overall when the economy is down, the economy is the thing that they tax. And so if, our, if we have a recession in, like they have no inflows to pay their own debts. Meanwhile, the interest rates are going up because that's what we're doing to fight inflation. Uh, and so the Wall Street Journal, and it's important to note that the Wall Street Journal is saying this because like, yeah, it's an extension of like this some parts of the world are just extensions of the state. There's like arguments that like the tech sector is just a, a surveillance arm of the state and the media sector is just like a, like a media arm of the state. If you just want to put this into like your conspiracy hats on, the Wall Street Journal is like very close to the state, right? Uh, and so like when the Wall Street Journal is saying like, hey, we need to defect from uh, the, the policy of the Federal Reserve and say, hey, if you guys keep on raising rates, you're gonna kill everything. It's important to know like where this source is. Now, this is just like one person's opinion in the Wall Street Journal, but I mean, it was published by the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, and you know what? This is the, this is the thing I think we want to find out and I want to find out, David. We have a lot of macro people coming in the podcast in the next couple of weeks, right? Like Lynn Alden's coming back. Who else? Um, Luke? Uh, Luke Grauman, yeah. Yeah, Grauman. Uh, we also have um, Travis Kling on as well. Like, yeah. we have like so many different macro commentators and, who well, are gonna give one us- One big question I wanna mm -hmm. find out is, okay, so you have people like uh, Dan from Pantera saying, mm -hmm. the Fed's gotta raise rates, like four to 5%. And the fact that they're talking about like half a percent or 0.75% raise is laughable 
because they're already like months behind. And so they need to raise it to like four or five percent as you have that. And then you have a conflicting kind of conversation going on saying the Fed can't raise rates or else the U.S. Right. won't be able to pay, his, uh, pay its interest payments right. any longer. So how does this get resolved right. is a big outstanding question for me that mm-hmm. I want to ask some of these macro brains on Bankless. So Bankless listeners, stay tuned for that. A lot of conversation coming up. The answer to that question probably is the answer that the whole entire market hinges upon right now. Like whether we are in a bear market or a bull market or that like a recession, it. depression or revitalization depends on the answer to that question, I would say. Totally agree. Guys, we got some more stuff coming up. Uh, three hours capital. Oof. Are dead? The Ooh, I've dust got, is I've settling. got some things to say, Ryan. David's going to go through the full story, and he, he knows that he's been doing his research here. Also, BlockFi lent three hours capital $1 billion. Oof, BlockFi is suffering row. in this as well. Right this is uh, the, the you know, crash of the crypto banks. Uh, and lastly, we're going to talk about the Grayscale suing the SEC, what that's all about. We'll get back to these topics when we come back. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. All right, guys, we are back. Going to start with the crypto contagion, the three arrows capital meltdown. Uh, The story continues into this week. Here is a story from the Wall Street Journal. Crypto hedge fund, three arrows capital ordered by court to liquidate. David's going to go through all of the details, but just a little bit of background on this. Three arrows capital is absolutely massive during the bull run. Um, 10 to 18 billion maybe assets under management it's still kind of unclear but a whole lot of money and a whole lot of prestige uh through this group and now there's a complete meltdown david what's the story here like what take us through the timeline of what happened now that we have seen the fallout from some of this we, we get to start to peer inside the black box that is three hours capital uh and the, all of this really started and this behavior started at the very beginning of the bull market for those that were here around the beginning of the bull market the grayscale gbtc trust the it's gbtc is one-to-one uh towards bitcoin but not there's no redemption window. And this is because we cannot have a Bitcoin ETF because of the SEC. They had to make a trust out of things. And so you could come to the Grayscale GBTC trust, you could deposit one Bitcoin, you would be issued one GBTC share, and then six to 12 months later, you were allowed to liquidate that share on the open market. Uh, and this is for accredited investors only. As the bull market got underway, and like uh, institutions did not have Coinbase accounts or FTX accounts, they used the Grayscale Trust to gain access to Bitcoin. And since they're not one-to-one redeemable, since there's not a credit window, the Grayscale GBT's trust, trust could have a premium. I think the premium got as large as like 148%, as in like one Bitcoin was, uh, one GBTC share was worth 1.48 times a Bitcoin when it should trade at par, but it doesn't because it's not an ETF, so it's, it's a So it's a nice trust. arbitrage, right? It's a 48% arbitrage right, right there if you can take the six months illiquidity, illiquidity window. Right. So here's what Three Rows Capital would do. They, they went out and borrowed as much Bitcoin as possible from the market to turn it into GBTC shares to milk this premium. They would borrow Bitcoin from some source and they would put it into Grayscale. Six months later, they would have this like 48% like arbitrage and that number would fluctuate. Because this thing premium is, would never go away, right? It was so persistent for so long uh, that that's what people thought. But then even even the most average person, well, like, yeah, if there's a premium, people are going to milk it. And Three Rose Capital were the people milking it. The thing is, Ryan, they weren't selling their GPTC 
in to capture in on premium, they were giving it to, they were using it as other collateral. So like th this starts off by three euros capital borrowing as much Bitcoin as possible, as much Bitcoin as the market would lend, lend to them from any lender facility possible, which is where this contagion starts. And so they put all their BTC that they are borrowing into the Grayscale GBTC Trust to get GBTC back. Uh, and then they start using that GBTC as collateral to borrow stable coins. So they're now borrowing stable coins based on their GBTC, and they started to invest in order to try and get the alpha, try and get the premium to start to pay their, some of their loans back for borrowing Bitcoin in the first place. They invest bigly into Terra. We all know what happens there. Uh, they bought a bunch of vested AVAX tokens. Uh, well, I mean, AVAX is down bad, and they're probably still vesting anyways. And they started to take more and more capital from wherever they could get it, because they also have like loan and interest payments to get back. Right, they get a $660 million unsecured loan from Voyager, which is a crypto exchange, not a lending facility. But somehow they convince Voyager to give them a $660 million loan, unsecured loan. They get a billion dollar loan from BlockFi. Over, over collateralized. Uh, I believe the numbers were some combination of Bitcoin and also GPTC shares. Uh, we'll talk about that later on. Uh, so they, they get a billion dollar loan from BlockFi uh, with a hundred with a 30% over collateralization. So like a 1.3 billion dollars inside of BlockFi, they get a one billion dollar loan, uh, and they go and speculate on the market with that. They get caught up in the staked ETH trade, like trading the merge, thinking that the merge is going to happen, like everyone's going to buy into staked ETH, but then instead of the merge happening, uh, markets go down bad because of Fed, Fed risks, and like their staked ETH, instead of being worth one ETH, turns into being worth 0.96 ETH, and they can't redeem that because that's how staked ETH works in the first place. Uh, and so, also, like, there's illegal stuff happening too. Uh, and so, the, the Singapore Central Bank uh, just uh, gave Three Arrows censures, censures, I don't know what that means actually, Three Arrows Capital for alleged misleading and false disclosures. And there's evidence for this that's going around on crypto Twitter and in throughout the markets. There's evidence that they falsified records to lenders in order to access more capital. So, the, fraud, basically. They committed fraud so that they, their balance sheet could look healthier so they could get more and more loans out from other people. There's also public reports that Three Arrows Capital allowed other trading firms to use their account on crypto exchanges to trade through their accounts, right? Three Arrows Capital, they had billions of dollars. They could, they could negotiate with crypto exchanges to like, hey, charge us less fees on your, on your exchange because we're going to put a bunch of volume there and we don't want to pay those fees. And the crypto exchanges are like, yes, totally. You guys put all this volume through our exchange. We'll totally charge you less fees. And then Three Arrows Capital let other people put money into their account to trade on their account on crypto exchanges so that they, these third parties could access less fees as well. You know what that is, Ryan? That is an unlicensed prime brokerage with Bank Secrecy Act and wire fraud. <laughs> that, these are criminal cases. Uh, and then there's also representation that they, uh, there's also evidence that they represented to OTC desks. They had relationships uh, with other entities and other uh, OTC desks that they didn't in order to like pr presume some legitimacy to other OC OTC desks. So they, they start off with this like very normal, like, I'll just borrow Bitcoin to get this GBTC tray premium. They never sell. They never, they never manage their risks. They, instead, of, instead of closing their risks, they just open up more loans on those risks. Then they somehow like, give this crypto Twitter uh, 
like a brand about themselves that they're huge chads who make a ton of money. Uh, and so people loan them even more money. They took money in from DeFi treasuries who like DeFi treasuries, like they raise $50 million. They're sitting on it. They don't need to go get yield during the bear market. So somehow three rows capital convinced them, just give us your treasury and we'll, we will give you like this percentage. Meanwhile, they probably like stick it into something like Terra and get 20% and then that thing goes to zero. So like a bunch of DeFi treasuries are down bad, uh, down to zero because they trusted three rows capital to give them the yield. And so like, not only did they like, they are the, one of the sources of contagion because they borrowed from Voyager. They borrowed from BlockFi. There's, if they didn't borrow from Celsius, they are one degree away from borrowing from well, Celsius. Well, what's crazy about this is like, this is the point retail uh, mm -hmm. starts lending to three rows capital right. without knowing it. So right. if you're putting funds into BlockFi, right? Mm -hmm. And you're generating some sort of yield, you were effectively lending to three arrows capital. Now this mm -hmm. is a, a, an over collateralized loan, right? Of right. course, so people think that's super safe, but we'll talk about why that wasn't so safe with GDBC right. a little bit later. But I think the important point here is it wasn't just institution to in institution. This became a retail phenomenon when you're mm -hmm. depositing uh, funds into these crypto banks like a BlockFi or Celsius, you are mm -hmm. actually giving some funds to Sue Zhu and the Three Rose Capital team. And that truth is rampant throughout the industry, right? Like Voyager, a crypto exchange, not a, a lending desk. Customers would come and deposit their money into Voyager Exchange to do normal exchange stuff, and Voyager lent that money out to Three Arrows Capital. So Three Arrows Capital is at the center of the contagion. They are the contagion, Ryan. They have they had their tentacles in every single entity that would ever lend them money, either over collateralized or under collateralized. And so, like, it almost doesn't matter where retail entered the industry. Money flowed into Three Arrows Capital because they took every single lending opportunity that they could and maxed that account out. That is crazy. Does this blow you nuts. away? Like it feels like they just made all of the noob mistakes in like right. one market cycle. They just did them all. It's like check right. the box. I'll think mm -hmm. the uh, the GDPC trade goes on forever. I'll get into Terra and see if that. I'll do this right. staking trade, expecting right. like the, uh, some sort of timing on the other side of this. Uh, I'll do the uh, alt layer one trade with Avalanche and all of these other things. Like they're just checking the boxes of all of the mistakes a noob would make to lose their money during the bull market. Right. And like it, it, they made such a staggering amount of money during the upside of the market. Part of that was on the backs of they borrowed it and then like, you know, it works in bull markets and then they lost it all in the bear market. Right. And so like I, I can't remember where I heard this quote from, but like the venture firms or like, you know, hedge funds that do extremely well in one cycle aren't going to be around it for the second cycle, because if they were levered up, they were if they were levered up on the way up, they're also levered on the way down and they don't make it the second time around. So like having too strong a performance on the upswing means you're getting liquidated on the downswing. And that's definitely what happened. You want to see the uh, cherry on top of this whole entire uh, this whole entire saga, Ryan? Yeah, give me the dirty Suzu cherry. has a $50 million mega yacht that is being seized. Uh, and I can't remember what I, I can't remember what the name of this yacht is, but it's some like internet meme. This is a triple-decker yacht that Suzu put a, a down payment on somewhere in like I think it's the British Virgin Islands or somewhere. Who has also made a court order to liquidate Three Arrows Capital because that's where Three Arrows Capital I believe is domiciled. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So like this is something that Suzu still has is this like fifty million dollar yacht that he has his down payment on. Wow. Uh, which is absolutely crazy. Absolutely uh, crazy. Absolutely brutal. Um, and uh, it, it sounds like the like authorities are stepping in. Nation states, mm -hmm. British Virgin right. Islands are ordering the liquidation. So, like the collectors are coming, probably for that yacht as well. 
I would mm-hmm. imagine all the assets are going to get liquidated. Um, it's pretty Ryan, crazy. This is, come this, this is not a matter of like three hours capital going under and like we're not we're not seeing three hours capital again. Like if this isn't happening yet, this is still in speculation phase, but this is a criminal enterprise. This is a criminal enterprise. Well, like, Kyle Davies and <laughs> Suzu are, in my mind, I'm not a lawyer. I do not have insights to these things. Do not listen to me. They are criminals on the run. Yeah, it definitely, uh, it definitely is starting to seem that way. And uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's, it's cost uh, the crypto market a lot in this cycle, including retail. Um, this is a tweet from Vitalik. What are we looking at? This is not him weighing in on the whole controversy, but I think he's maybe being a little uh, subtle here. He's, a little he's being a little, a little snarky. What's yeah, for good reason. Vitalik says that there are far more honorable ways to burn $50 million to impress people than buying a super yacht. They burned way more than $50 million, by the way. Like becoming a Gitcoin Grants matching partner. Here is the matching partners for our current round. So if you want to look around in the space and like, look who is still capitalized and capitalized to the point of donating to public goods, it's the people in this graphic. We got Unlock Protocol. We got the graph. Uh, we got uh, Radical, we got Aragon Project, Zora, Figment, uh, ZK Validators, Cello, Yearn Finance, ENS Domains, Protocol Labs, Chainlink. Sorry if I'm not, not writing all these. Polygons there, Aves there. Uh, these are the people that are so well capitalized that they are still donating money to public goods. Nice job, guys. Yeah, there we go. And you know what? This is just, um, I, I hope this is part of the cleansing process of getting rid of the mm-hmm. excess of. Um, like greed and leverage and, and margin that was going on during the, the bull market. Um, Dave and I aren't like celebrating the downfall of three hours capital. At least I'm not. Maybe David is <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> no, he's not. But like, I, it's this had to end. This whole spirit mm-hmm. of like degen, short term, um, traders dominating, like this had to end. And we had to get back to the fundamentals of what we're actually building in this industry. And so I feel like from that perspective, this is the hard medicine, the crypto industry and everyone in the crypto industry has to swallow because the stuff we were doing in the cycle and by we, I, I, I don't mean bankless listeners necessarily, but collectively the industry was not sustainable, was not healthy and had to stop at some point. And so better now than later. Right. right. And uh, I think this is a healthy thing. Well, let's talk a little bit about BlockFi because you were t- the contagion has spread to BlockFi. Yeah. You said that they was had part a one, one of the contagion. Yeah, yeah, they had a one billion dollar uh, <laughs> loan outstanding to Three Arrows Capital, but it was collateralized by one point three billion dollars or something to that effect. H- how does this even happen? How does the contagion spread when you've got a collateralized uh, loan to to BlockFi, David? How does this spread into bla- bo- BlockFi's uh, you know potential bankruptcy or insolvency right now? Is what it's looking like. Well, so $1.3 of over-collateralized loan for a $1 billion loan, like, that's sure. But, like, crypto prices went down by, like, 60 or 70%. And Three Rose Capital didn't have any money to top up their loan. So that $1.3 billion in, in collateral was probably below the $1 billion loan that, that BlockFi gave Three Rose Capital. Well, my understanding so, is BlockFi, there was, like, there was like um, a $1 billion something loan, mm-hmm, right, that, mm-hmm. that um, BlockFi had with um, Three Arrows Capital, they were lending them, and they had, you know, we'll call it $1.3 million, a billion dollars over collateralization of that. Mm-hmm. A whole chunk of that was Bitcoin, and that right. could be collateralized as prices go mm-hmm. down. BlockFi is going, sorry, that could be uh, liquidated. As prices go down, BlockFi is going to liquidate that entire position. And my understanding is they did. 
But another chunk of that, of the $1.3 billion that was supposed to collateralize this loan, was actually, actually uh, GDBC. And that right. is not liquid in the same way that Bitcoin is liquid, right? Mm -hmm. And so my understanding is that's really where BlockFi has gotten hung up on the GDBC collateral that was not worth what it seemed like it was worth in the market. Right. And that's the part that really you know, punched him and uh, knocked him out. Um, I mean, there's other things that BlockFi was probably doing right. from a risk perspective, but this was certainly a big one and has led what to BlockFi um, it's, uh, there's, there's a fire been some purchase talk. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's going on there? Yeah. There is a tug of war. There is a race to acquire BlockFi. Uh, and so th this is a, a race between Morgan Creek digital, which already has a bunch of block e equity to begin with. Uh, and then also FTX. Uh, so FTX gave BlockFi, I think a $200 million like credit revolving door, like facility, I think, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. 250 million, yeah, credit agreement. Uh, and so like that allows for like users with, to withdraw their money. Um, as far as I know, users can still withdraw their money. Uh, and that, that comes off of like a credit, credit agreement with FTX. And I think what that means is that FTX has the ability to purchase FTX shares from the equity holders at like basically from what BlockFi was previously valued at, basically free. Like at this current valuation, BlockFi is is valued at twenty five to fifty million dollars, which is an extremely it's, low number. It's from basically where they wiping from. them out. It's basically you're right. taking all of the equity holders of BlockFi, whether that's the founders or employees or previous mm -hmm. investors like Morgan Creek, you're wiping them out. But what FTX was doing here is placing its um, its debt to BlockFi as more junior to depositor mm -hmm. debt. So that means they're kind of like protecting depositors. So if you were a regular user and you had deposited funds into BlockFi, you want to make sure you're going to get that money out. And you want to get that money out before, in a liquidation event, FTX gets its money out. And so that was the benefit that this was providing. And I actually think it's, it's laudable that BlockFi is trying to look out for its users. Uh, maybe depositors. they're also trying to just prevent, like, criminal charges or something like right. this, right? So right. You, maybe it's not all kind of moralism here. Maybe maybe they're actually trying to protect themselves here. But d depositors getting protected in this scenario is a good thing. It's not clear that that's what's happening in Celsius. It seems like depositors are probably going to take some haircut when the Celsius dust settles. Some and so that at least was good about FTX. But then Morgan Creek is like, um, why should BlockFi only be worth $25 million? Right. Like this is right. somebody coming in and, and basically scalping BlockFi when they're down and they're mm -hmm. trying to raise some emergency capital to uh, value the company at a higher amount and provide that 250 million uh, injection. I think that valuation, if Morgan Creek deal goes through is something like $500 million. So uh, right. far higher than the FTX deal. Right. but. Like you said, this that puts the equity holders, current and, and new equity holders of BlockFi, above depositors. So this is not only a, a tug of war between FTX and Morgan Creek. This is a tug of war of who gets who gets like ba like bailed out first. I guess is maybe yeah. The, I don't the know right that's the case. It. I don't know all of the details of the Morgan Creek and what position it mm. puts depositors in. I I think Morgan Creek is trying to also protect um, depositors. Um, mm -hmm. That's not clear to me, but. Um, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of dust to still settle right. in the BlockFi case. Um, but in, in good news, I, mm -hmm. I, um, 
I actually had some funds. I, I know. I, did I confess two weeks ago that I had some funds on Celsius? Again, yeah, you did. Ryan likes to try everything. <laughs> Ryan tried some centralized lending <laughs> lenders, uh, including Celsius, Nexo, a, a few others. Just a small amount of funds, right? Because you got to mm -hmm. you got to keep an things. eye on those crypto banks out there. You got to keep an eye on. Got to keep an eye on. It's not looking good for my <laughs> Celsius deposit. All right, but I was actually able to withdraw from BlockFi in the last few days. And so that's at least a good sign. That's a stress test mm -hmm. uh, of mm -hmm. some sort. They're not freezing accounts yet. So it doesn't seem to be it's in as bad a position as, um, as Celsius is. I have a BlockFi credit card, like credit card too. I hope that's going to be you? okay. <laughs> uh, what do you think, David? Well, if it's a credit card, it's probably going to be fine. There's a really good article out of the block that really summarized these whole things, saying four big takeaways uh, that from from all of the from a leaked investor call. Kind of recapping what we've already said, BlockFi is currently being valued at less than $500 million. Uh, if the FTX deal goes through significantly less than $500 million, we're talking about $25 to $50 million. If the Morgan Creek deal goes through, maybe it's around that, give or take. Uh, Morgan Creek Digital says BlockFi is the loan to 3Rs Capital was $1 billion, and the collateral on 3Rs Capital loan was two-thirds Bitcoin and one-third GBTC. Uh, during the call, yes, um, FTX um, uh, may... The XPX deal gives the firm the option to buy BlockFi, but not if Morgan Creek can get there first. And then, of course, obviously, more layoffs may be in the works at BlockFi. It's kind of what I would be, uh, I would expect. But, Ryan, I would like to take this opportunity to go backwards in time about one year to June uh, 2021, uh, when BlockFi was on the verge of going public, right when the SEC came into BlockFi and told them that they could no longer accept new customer deposits in their existing, uh, their existing like lending products, uh, and BlockFi fought them on this. Uh, the SEC wanted them to close their existing lending product products. BlockFi fought them on this and said, "Hey, we just won't accept any in new inbound, but current customers get to be grandfathered in." And that's the settlement of that that whole thing. Can I just BlockFi then? Can we just say ahead. like? Is the SEC saving the day here? I mean, They're like not, not doing that. <laughs> they weren't wrong about this, were they? They weren't wrong. Nope, not at all. Uh, and so, uh, at the same time, BlockFi wanted to go public, and so it was it was going to raise five hundred million dollars on their Series E, which would put them at four point seven billion dollar valuation. Four point seven billion dollar valuation a year ago. Twelve months. One year ago. <laughs> Fast forward to today. BlockFi is on the on the market for twenty five to fifty million dollars in valuation. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Um, that's uh, that's down bad, and uh, it's unfortunate that retail has been involved. Yes. And again, it's people depositing into BlockFi. You see the crypto contagion. BlockFi issues uh, some some loans to Three Arrows Capital. Three Arrows Ca Capital goes bust, and mm -hmm. eventually that flows back to retail. Right. This is right. this is the problem. Um, I think this is a great contrast point with um, DeFi did quite well during all of this. Right. A lot of mm -hmm. lending going on in DeFi. And mm -hmm. when crypto goes down 70% to 90%, right, a lot of the CeFi lenders are caught like insolvent. And yet right. DeFi unwinded very gracefully with a mm -hmm. highly efficient market. We're going to get more to a mm -hmm. take on that in, in a little bit. But 
it's um, it's quite the contrast. The juxtaposition point. is just so clear. Exactly. It's Could so it be clear. More clear. And as a quick, fun little side quest before we go on to the next thing, the SEC thing, uh, there was an article out of the block that states that FTX was interested in making a deal with Celsius, kind of in the same way that they're making a deal with BlockFi. But then they looked at Celsius's balance sheet and they were like, oh, no, no way. We're out of here. Uh, so declined buying Celsius once they take, took a look at their balance sheet, which is uh, uh, not a good sign. Uh, allegedly, according to a source, uh, Celsius has a $2 billion hole in their balance sheet. So like, no one would like to take responsibility of that one. David, did you, did you see that meme? It was like a person reaching down to someone, someone's hand and they're in the water and looking mm. like they're drowning. And it says FTX and it's like, I'll help you. And Celsius is the person drowning in water. And then the right. person goes down under and it's only the hand. And like um, the FTX caption is like, oh, you're too deep. See you later. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's kind of Oof. like, it's kind Oof. of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, Celsius is in a far worse place mm -hmm. than BlockFi was. And mm -hmm. so we're kind of seeing the quality of these crypto banks right now, right? We have right. some that are still left standing. Right. Um, Nexo is still left standing. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Juno, which we talked about earlier, they're, they're still left standing. Right? Yeah. Uh, Coinbase is fine. They're going to yep. be totally fine. CZ, Binance, they're, they're actually like buying things. FTX, they're buying things right yeah. now, too. FTX but is in all a great them, position right now. Yeah, they're in a great position. Uh, anyway, so, okay, what does the GDBC thing have to do with all of this? We've mentioned it a few times. And uh, Grayscale is actually suing the mm -hmm. SEC. They are the creators of the GDBC mm -hmm. product. Can you explain what's going on here for us, David? Right, and so the GPTC discount is something like 30 to 35% at the moment, as in the GPTC is worth only 70% of what one Bitcoin is worth. And a and lot GDPC of people- GPTC is a product that mm -hmm. you can get in your retirement account, right? Retail yep. can buy Retail in their retirement buy. account because we don't have an official ETF in the US. We have to use products like GDPC, which is a trust. Right, and it's like, like almost inarguably an inferior product. Like it's supposed to represent one Bitcoin, yet it's only representing 70% of one Bitcoin. And there's like a six month illiquidity lockup period for creditor investors between when they deposit Bitcoin and then they when can they uh, redeem their GBTC. So like a lot of capital lockup, a lot of capital efficiency. During a time where crypto markets go down like 75% on average, there is, a, a, a discount, a 30% discount on GBTC and a illiquidity lockup phase. When people need liquidity the most, this trust model sucks it all, all dry. And it's no fault of Grayscale at all. It's the SEC's fault because the SEC won't let them turn this into an ETF. Uh, and so the SEC rejected Grayscale's spot Bitcoin ETF application, which from all the commentators like Jake Stravinsky and others that I'm aware of, uh, say like, there's literally no reason why the SEC should deny this. This is totally above board. It, they should accept this. But for some reason, people just got the feeling that the SEC was gonna deny it. Uh, and so the day that the SEC said that they are denied the Grayscale uh, conversion of the trust to an ETF, ETF, Michael Sonnenschein tweets out, we're filing, we've filed a lawsuit against the SEC dollar sign GPTC, ticker sign GPTC, 15,000 likes, which is a big, big number. Uh, and so they also release this PR report uh, that, that talks about the details. Nice like there. Uh, Grayscale Investment initiates lawsuit against the SEC. We're going to court. 
Crypto is taking the SEC to court, uh, and everyone, I think, in my opinion, should be behind this conversion uh, of the trust into an ETF because it would immediately restore 30% of like, like capital that should be there in the GBTC token, and it would, and it would allow a one-to-one -one redemption window between GBTC and Bitcoin. So many people would get much more liquidity, so many people would become much more capitalized in a time, in a place in the market where people need it the most. So. Statement out of uh, Grayscale says, the SEC is failing to apply consistent treatment to similar investment vehicles and is thereby acting arbitrarily and capriciously in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act and Securities Exchange Act of 1934. There is a compelling and common sense argument, for, uh, argument here, and we look forward to resolving this matter productively and expeditiously, says Grayscale. Take him to court, Grayscale. Go do well, it. look, man, look, indirectly, the SEC cost retail a lot of money so right? because of this market inefficiency. Now, I'm, I'm not saying like Suzu's actions and BlockFi's risk actions um, caused all of this, but I am saying that there's an inefficiency in GDBC and uh, the Bitcoin spot price that doesn't actually need to be right. there and right. wouldn't be there if the SEC just allowed Grayscale to convert it to an ETF. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of an example of like sometimes regulators in the SEC are helpful to the industry, right? And it's like, okay, we have a centralized lending provider, right? We need some regulation. We need some windows into that. We need some auditing. We need some insight into that, okay? So like there should be a role for regulators in, um, you know, looking at Celsius in depth and looking at BlockFi mm -hmm. in depth and making sure that like they're on the up and up, okay? That, that's one thing that we could benefit from. By the same token, we also want from the SEC an ETF for retail. Like, right. so why can't you get rid of like, help us with the things we need help with as a crypto industry, but then also give us the things that will protect retail that we need, like an ETF, mm -hmm. give us a safe um, space to play. And of course, like this kind of silence on uh, DeFi from regulators and almost hostility towards DeFi, an undue hostility, uh, towards DeFi and it's kind of a TBD. We don't know if we're going to allow that or not, right? When DeFi is part of the answer to this, right? right? DeFi markets performed flawlessly, transparent, mm -hmm. on-chain. It all worked. We we did the same liquidations right. that the CeFi lenders did, except DeFi didn't screw anyone over. It actually right. performed exactly as it right. was supposed to. It's because our regulations are based in smart contracts. So the SEC and other regulators could view DeFi as part of the solution here. Right. And they're not they quite there yet. They I'm could. hopeful it gets resolved, David, but like, mm. I just feel like anything with regulators is kind of a, a double-edged sword because we want you guys here to help right. us with the right. scams and like the, the clear like things that we need help with where retail is getting screwed over. But we don't want you to like say the whole thing is off limits and hamper the entire industry and try to shut it down and get it out of like the US because part of the reason we're doing these things is because we are routing around dumb regulation that doesn't work for the people. That's my that's my rant on the SEC David. Love it. So going back to the the market section where we talked about like the 15 different sources of inflation, like here's here's the source here's like the four sources for the contagions in the, in the crypto industry. 
We had like irresponsible centralized lenders, uh, both unsecured and secured. Uh, we had Three Arrows Capital taking advantage of that. Uh, we had an inferior product out of, out of Grayscale with the GBT Trust, again, to no fault of their own, and an SEC unwilling and un, un, unwilling to work with this industry to provide clarity or, or allow this industry to move forward in a way that protected retail investors and allowed these markets to do efficient and orderly clearing of liquidations. Like the SEC, which is their mandate, got in the way of that. So like this, cont the contagion of crypto, the reason why it's so big, is like three or four different interwoven reasons. Like some degeneracy culture, uh, like central, like the same reasons of, of like DeFi people like like talk crap about CeFi stuff is like black black box human folly. Like you can't manage stuff, so you let the code do it. Uh, and then because of that inferior stuff, you have like Thero's Capital, who like exploits every single possible like way to get money out of it. Like yeah. that, congratulations. That is the, the bear market of the last six months. That We're all is, on that's the hook. A full context. We're all on the hook for it. It's a lot of, yeah. a lot of blame to be shared um, right. across all, all, all groups doing this. Um, David, we got more to cover, man. We're going to yeah. talk a bit more about uh, Maker's DeFi governance, the biggest mm -hmm. maker proposal in history. Most controversial, uh, Also, yeah. an update on Arbitrum Odyssey. This is mm -hmm. their latest update and what's going on there. Guys, we'll be right back. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. And we are back Longtime Bankless listeners will know that MakerDAO holds a very close place in my heart. I think it's a very cool project. And there was the most contentious, most controversial governance proposal over MakerDAO just happened. The highest amount of all MKR showed up to vote. Uh, and it was it was neck and neck up until the very end. Uh, here's GFX Labs putting everything into a, into a nice summary. 30% of all token supply voted, uh, which is crazy to think because like all so many MKR scattered around like all of DeFi, 30% of them showed up. Uh, voting was neck and neck until the last two hours. Uh, the vote was to add a new core unit to oversee the DAO's onboarding of collateral assets and also form a specific framework for growing the protocol. This core unit also came with a hefty price tag. Basically, the framework was a little bit more of kind of like a constitution, a constitution-ish about like what MakerDAO needs to do, where it needs to go, the direction it needs to go in. And it was a pretty like, uh, like, big turn off of its current path. Uh, and so, unlike, uh, the thread continues, unlike most governance votes, two distinct sides developed. Those who wanted to see more organization and control voted yes, which is like the TradFi VC real world assets camp. Uh, and then the no's, which are like the kind of the core MakerDAO community, uh, opposed the price tag and didn't really like this specific direction and wanted to continue with Rune, the founder of MakerDAO's, his uh, end game plan. That's the name of a post that he wrote. Uh, and so, after the dust settled, it ended up being that the the TradFi and VCs uh, did not make the did not make the proposal. They got outvoted by about fifteen percent. Uh, so the MakerDAO decided to go with a continued endgame plan. Uh, but the idea here is that there are there's a tight there's a tug of war going on over MakerDAO. And no one thinks that this is over. Uh, and so uh, after this, uh, Hazu actually put a very interesting thread together about his vision for the future of MakerDAO. Hazu was on the yes side of these things, like the, the TradFi and VC side of things. And like I know TradFi and VCs are generally heard as a, a negative term, like uh, abstain your, your opinions on that word in this particular context because these are crypto VCs who have opinions. Hazu puts a tweet out that says, I just proposed a series of simple governing changes to MakerDAO that address many problems that exist in governance today. This includes a general lack of vision and strategy as well as low accountability for maker holders. Hazu has been thinking a ton about 
DAO governance lately. And so he puts these like uh, this proposal into place that basically like streamlines governance because there are so many things that's going on with MakerDAO that everyone has to vote on all the things and there's no just like there's no centralization of decision making basically like it's really taking the DAO at heart so like he puts these vision strategy tactics and implementation categories together and promotes like three different ideas that just streamlines all of these things uh, and so if you are into the world of DAO governance and, and like on the frontier of that pay attention to what Hazu wrote uh, we're going to get him on the podcast soon uh, but basically there's a very controversial MakerDAO vote pulling MakerDAO into two different directions. Uh, and while this new direction did lose, I don't think it's going to be the last time we hear from this. Well, I do think it's healthy, honestly. I think mm -hmm. I think the two directions are kind of healthy, right? So it right. sounds like VC investors are just like, hey, we want more accountability. And our right. method for solving that is like, let's install a core unit, a new management team right. effectively, right. some more centralization, mm -hmm. right? And here's the community saying, no, everything's good. We have a plan. Right. Let's keep going the, the, in the direction we're going. And this is a healthy tug of war, I think, because totally. like the other reality is everyone who owns the Maker token does have another vote beyond this governance vote. And that vote is just to sell their MKR tokens if they no longer believe in the direction of, of the project. And so any investor in MKR tokens could do that at any time. Uh, and anyway, it's good to see. I, I do think sometimes communities veer on the other side of uh, the whole decentralization debate too much. And they're like, yeah, no structure, all structure mm -hmm. is bad. All leadership is bad. Uh, any kind of, you know, token mechanic that increases the value of the token is, is bad. Mm -hmm. And that is obviously not the right choice either. Right. It's like, I, I would love to see a bit more investor action in something like the uni token, for right. example, like right. I would love to see it there. Anyway, let's turn I, on that fee switch. Hmm? Yeah, exactly. I think it's all healthy, and uh, I'm anxious to see how this all plays out, but it's playing out transparently in real time. Here's another governance vote from Lido. What's going on here, David? Yeah, this is not the end of the DAO governance saga, also with uh, related to Hazu. Uh, there was a proposal from the Lido DAO to itself to say, hey, should we cap ourselves? Should we limit how much Ether is in Lido? Because Ether is like dangerously close to passing a threshold uh, that would allow Lido to have undue control over the entire Ethereum network. I wouldn't actually be surprised if that limit has already been passed. So Lido submitted a governance proposal to itself saying, hey, should we like cap ourselves? Should we prevent more Ether from being deposited so we don't grow too big? Uh, and surprise, surprise, 99.81% of Lido said, no, we should not cap ourselves, which like makes sense, right? Like Lido is not going to say like, I think that we we should, should make less money because our product is too good. Like, they're not going to say that. And so Hazu, again, co-authored another proposal for Lido staked ETH governance, which I think is really innovative. And I think it is a model that we can take out for other DAOs, right? And so the idea here is that uh, Lido governance will stay Lido governance, but staked ETH holder, holders, Ryan, get the ability to veto any Lido DAO proposal. So they don't, like staked ETH holders don't get to say yes, they don't get to submit new proposals, but if a new proposal is submitted by Lido DAO governance and the Lido DAO governance says yes, then staked ETH holders can come in and say no. That's which I think is cool. really cool. Nice That's really, really cool. Yeah, so like there's, the, the staked ETH holders get one tool, which is no, you get to veto. Veto power. Which, right, and so I think that's great. I think that's really cool. That's really smart. And that's the kind of evolution which I'm most excited about in, in kind mm -hmm. of DAO governance is new ideas like, mm -hmm. like Hasu's idea here and to see how that emerges. Um, no surprise, though, that Lido would vote to, to self-limit, right. right? In fact, the original proposal, I mean, there, 
I don't think anyone was calling for a self-limit. Like, even Vitalik was not talking about a self-limit. Right. He was talking about, like, fees. raise fees. Raise the fees. After you have a certain percentage of market share. Mm-hmm. So even the original proposal seemed kind of, like, constructed in a very binary way. That was a little bit weird. But, of course, token holders are going to vote in their own self-interest. Right. Uh, David, let's talk about some Layer 2 stuff, too. So Layer 2 stuff. Odyssey from Arbitrum. What is Odyssey? And um, what happened with it this week? Right, so Arbitrum Odyssey is basically this, this this journey around the Arbitrum ecosystem where you would go and do some things and you would get some NFTs. The first week of the Odyssey was Bridge Week. So you bridge onto Arbitrum and you would get an NFT if you did that. Uh, and so they were going to go from Bridge Week into like App Week, which is going to be the remainder of the Odyssey, like weeks two through eight. Uh, but as soon as App Week uh, got started, like Arbitrum got congested because so many people came onto Arbitrum during Bridge Week. As soon as I started doing App Week stuff, uh, they got congested. Uh, and that's because a lot of the applications that was in this first week was like heavy computation stuff. There was a lot of, um, uh, what was the app that was being used? Uh, it was GMX, which are perps and leverage, which just require a ton of computation. Uh, and so like, you know, simple transfers on Arbitrum, like that's, that's not gonna clog the network. But like as soon as you do like computationally heavy stuff, that will start to clog the network. Uh, and so th- they are putting uh, the Odyssey on pause until they release Nitro. And once they get Nitro back, uh, once they get Nitro online and they get the Arbitrum like layer two updated to this new update, uh, then they're gonna resume the Odyssey and the Odyssey shall continue. Uh, I asked some of the, the Arbitrum uh, folks, like give, give, if you could give us some numbers on like what uh, the, the scalability of Nitro. And they said, a nice, easy, easy to interpret number of seven Ethereums. As soon as uh, the Nitro update is on online, Arbitrum is going to be about seven Ethereums. Uh, and like, like all uh, layer twos, like these updates are just the beginning. Uh, and so like going to where Arbitrum is now, which I think is like two to three Ethereums, going up to seven Ethereums, nice big jump. Uh, but then like there's also again four uh, EIP four four eight eight that increases the scale as well. Uh, and so um, uh, there's also like some crazy numbers that we have. There's a Dune Analytics page, which I'll have you, have you pull up, Ryan, which just showed the sheer magnitude of people that went on to Arbitrum during week, week one. 250,000 new bridgeors, at least bridging addresses, uh, that happened on Arbitrum. So 250,000 addresses went Arbit- onto Arbitrum in, in seven days. And like that wasn't congested at all, just again, because like simple transfers are totally fine. So can um, I ask you, David, did they, they just paused the, the Odyssey itself, right? right? They didn't pause the network or anything oh. like God, yes, no, 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 no. Net- yeah, network network pa- is doing just fine. Like it, it, the congestion's not even here at this point. They just paused their marketing program right. basically because right. they were like, "Oh, too much, too soon." Right. We want to deploy Nitro first, which is right. going to seven x uh, their network, and you mm-hmm. know that. So that's the reason why the pause. Why are people doing this for for worthless NFTs, David? I mean, okay, so like the simple take <laughs> is that if you get all the NFTs, you'll get all the airdrops. Oh, like, okay. That makes so these are like participation NFTs, right? Participation NFTs. Uh, like, it's so obvious that I'm kind of skeptical on it. It's like, yeah, like Arbitrum, obviously, we're going to give you NFTs so you can be on a list of people who got the NFTs. Just it seems because so it's obvious. obvious. Dude. ETH, ETH is obvious right now, the merge. I think that that's what's totally going to happen. Again, none of this is going to... We don't know anything right. from the Arbitrum team right. about any of this. But like, what's really nice about this is that if they're giving out NFTs for real things that people are doing, they get a pretty clean whitelist right. of actual individuals doing real things in the network. Well, not, if, not if you farm it, though. So you, people are just farming NFTs instead? Right, right. farming yeah. NFTs. That's a concept. Yeah. I, I, bet, I bet they'll... I bet they'll find a way like right. around that, but it it gives a nice base of sure. additional data to differentiate for a, a future airdrop, which 
gotta right. be happening, man. Gotta be happening. Oh, well, the um, ARB token is coming for sure. I'm sure I've been trying to figure this out, Ryan. What is the Arbitrum token going to be called? ARB or ARBI or something else? Arby? Arby? Arby's kind of a cool name. Like Arby's? It makes me think fast food. <laughs> it's like Arby's? Arb is cool though because it's Arb's like, pretty you know, cool. arbitrage. You're right. right. Arb. Uh huh. Um, what is optimism? OP. OP. What's OP? It's just OP, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, it, I it think, could, super hot. Could be AR. AR. AR, AR versus yeah, OP. Sounds like a gun. Uh, uh. Oh yeah. yeah. Like I don't know. I don't know. We'll we'll have to see when I, it comes I think, out. I do think optimism won the name the name debate or the name o- fight. But OP is that's nice. That's just my take. OP is OP pretty hot. Uh, okay. Speaking, Speaking of, optimism, of OP. <laughs> <laughs> they going up too. Mm-hmm. Trading activity surges on Optimism's layer two as total locked value doubles. David, this is a layer two beat. Look at this. Optimism now number two mm-hmm. ahead of DYDX in Oof. terms of total locked value on the roll up. The number two roll up behind Arbitrum, which has $1.96 billion. It seems like the recent OP airdrop has mm-hmm. helped in terms of getting more value locked inside of this platform. Also impressive that this is happening during a bear market. So rollups continuing to do well, even despite a bear market. Any other takes here? I wonder if the minus 11% flowing out of DYDX is a reaction to their DYDX chain, or if just people are scared in the bear market, so they're not trading leverage. I don't know. Could be Could be, be, I'm tempted to say it's kind of noise for now, but Mm. that's gonna be one to, DYDX no longer gonna be on L2 beat, David. You sad about that? Right, yeah. This is going to be L L1 beat. Yeah, it'll be there is an L1 beat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the way, guys, we had an episode with Antonio where mm-hmm. they talked about, earlier this week, they talked about their transition to an app chain for a layer two. You mm-hmm. go listen to that episode. I have some thoughts coming out of that episode. Got some thoughts. I won't share yeah. them all here, but um, in the weeks to come, maybe we'll share some of those thoughts. But anyway, great episode if you want to hear their rationale for doing this. Uh, eat stuff. Merge stuff. When merge, David? Uh, July well, we still, 6th, something's we still happening. Don't, we still don't know that. The July 6th is not when the merge is happening. That is when the Sepolia testnet merge is happening. Uh, and so that's coming up. That is the second of three testnets that we must get to to get the, the actual merge. The second one is happening on July 6th. Uh, it's going to be live streamed on Anthony Sassano's Daily Gway or maybe the East Stakers. It'll just be a whole entire event. So that's on the horizon. That's good. Another dress rehearsal down. Uh, David, speaking of down, though, NFTs have been down pretty bad. Yeah. I don't know if you've looked at the price of your JPEGs lately, but it's oh. not going to give you any comfort, okay? I um, love all my JPEGs. I don't look at the price. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just David's just here for the images. Yeah. Um, he's here for the art, okay? So NFTs, USD volume, it's back to like 2021 levels, yeah. like early 2021 levels. Right. Um, down pretty bad. But there is one bright spot in the NFT economy, and that is dot ENS names. names. ENS, ENS names, outperformers right now, especially the three-digit numbers. Some crazy, crazy sales have happened in the last three days. Uh, 003.eth got sold for 83.5 ETH. 8888 got sold for 38 ETH. Um, 0, 037 got sold for 30 ETH. 383 got sold for 27 ETH. Ryan, porno.eth got sold for 184 ETH. So ENS names are hot right now. Yeah, hotter than Sam.eth, which only came in at 100 ETH. So oh, poor Sam. Porno's got you beat, Sam, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, look at these numbers, man. May was like the biggest month ever right. for, um, ENS, for ENS. And mm-hmm. June looks like it's gonna be strong too. Uh, so pretty impressive. All the while, 
Michael Saylor mm -hmm. continues to dollar cost average right. into Bitcoin. Right. In the bear market, he hasn't stopped. It's probably a better time to actually buy the Bitcoin at this point in time. But he just purchased another $10 million of Bitcoin. David, are you getting concerned that like Saylor owns too much Bitcoin at this point? Like He's got to be close to 1% of the entire Bitcoin supply. Uh, one, yeah, okay, 1% is 21, 201, 210,000, and he's got 130,000. He's still got a ways to go for 1%. The only, the only thing I, I see when I see Michael Saylor buying more Bitcoin is like, dude, you spent all of your ammo at the top. Like, that's not dollar cost averaging. He's just like putting in Sir, his fumes at this point. expand your time horizon. The top of what? Not the top of the decade, okay? <laughs> just a local top. It's just a local top, my friend. Oh, God. You can't time these things. You've got a dollar cost average. A kind of a useful website, uh, Ryan, you might want to pull this up while I talk about that, is bitcointreasuries.net. Uh, and so it, this can just show you people and the treasuries of people around the world and how much Bitcoin they have and when, what they bought it out. Uh, the cost basis for MicroStrategy is basically $4 billion. They've taken oh, $4 wow. billion USD and bought it and bought Bitcoin with that, which is currently valued at in today's dollars at $2.4 billion. So they have lost... $1.5 billion on their Bitcoin trade. Uh, they have down 40%. Down uh, and then you can see how much of the of the 21 million they have. They have Dude, that's not 0. bad. 6. I've been down worse than this. Good job, 40% or $1.5 billion? Oh. <laughs> Definitely the former, all right? I've been down worse than 40%. I do think that, like, I mean, I know people are making fun of him now. Um, mm -hmm. I do think this trade is ultimately going to pay off, like, yeah. really well. Like, when you zoom out, and, you know... The capital he's getting is is kind of basically free. It's yeah. a you know, publicly traded company. It's taking these like loans at very low uh, Fed interest rates. I know that's not what MicroStrategy should probably be doing directionally, right? right? They're business analytics firm, but it's probably going to pay off for them. I still think this. I just see the the ten million dollars is a drop in the bucket on their two point five billion dollar position, which started at four billion dollars. Like you should have saved your ammo, dude. <laughs> Oh yeah, but that's what everyone says, right? You yeah. can't time these things. In my I mean, I, I, I'm also sailor. I, I still should, support I'm you buying. Telling man. this to myself too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keep buying the dip, sailor. Yeah. It's uh, you know, maybe you could reverse things for us. Uh, David, this is um, a tweet. Mm, this is uh, yeah. from Naraj from Coin Center, and um, just to the crypto industry's attention to this, I thought this right. was an interesting story. Chinese officials are using the COVID health code system to stop a bank run. Oof. They turned all would-be withdrawals uh, codes red before they could get to the bank, effectively unpersoning them. So mm. what was happening in the banking system in China, what's been happening is rather than suffer a bank run where individual citizens were going to the bank to try to withdraw funds, the banking system would just give them a COVID code, a COVID right. red code. Which you are COVID positive, you cannot leave your house. Exactly. Cannot leave the house and ex effectively excommunicates you from the social system, but also the financial system. Right. So cutting off your bank access that way in order to prevent a bank run. This, my mm -hmm. friends, is very terrifying. This is scary. This is the reason we can't have the nation states in control of the banking system and in control of the money supply. And with the, a bureaucrat's ability to just press a button and eliminate you from the economy. Why? To mm -hmm. stop a bank run? Who, like, right. who knows? Who knows the why, uh, what the why will be in the future? Maybe because you're 
have different different political persuasions. Maybe you voted a different way. Maybe you've said something publicly on TV. This is very terrifying to me. And I think I am most alarmed that um, countries in the West are actually embracing similar capabilities. Right. This is what a uh, centrally administered central bank digital currency. Right. This is actually the power that that gives. The right. They wouldn't state. even need to deem people as COVID positive. They would just skip that step and just go straight to like, no, you can't have your money. There's totally. a, a quote from this article says, uh, the news about the health codes has gone viral on China's social media platforms. Sooner or later, this sort of thing is going to happen to all of us. Wake up, people, one user wrote. National pandemic prevention policy has been reduced to a private weapon, said another. This is the height of expansion of power, ideological decay, and evil influence Oof. Oof. Guys, coming I think to a CBDC the, near you. The end of the decade, we're only going to have two types of money. There's going to be state surveillance controlled money, and there's mm -hmm. going to be free money. It's all going to yeah. be digital. And the it's free money, the only free money available, will not be cash anymore. It will just be crypto. So you got crypto and centrally controlled money, and those are the two options. And this is why we need to preserve crypto as an option. You hear, you hear that from us every time on Bankless. Um, David, there was a bridge hack this week, too. We got to cover that real quick. What happened? Yeah, Harmony to Ethereum bridge, uh, $100 million was stolen in another bridge hack. Um, I mean, we've, we've been here before. Uh, Ryan, you want to know who was behind it? Um, who, isn't it? North, North Korea. North, it Korea. North Korea. It was North Korea. Yeah. Oh my God. So, once again, North Korea hacked a bridge and now has all the money. Uh, does not look good uh, when half of this industry's hacks end up in North Korea's pockets. Oof. Bad. You know, the, uh, it was interesting in our conversation earlier this week with Matthew Green how he said he was having conversations with uh, the you know, U.S. national defense. And mm -hmm. they were like, hey, how can we come help the crypto industry to prevent hacks from these like happening? Right. Because every time North Korea goes and hacks something, mm -hmm. right, they get more funding for right. their government to go, I don't know, what, do, build do whatever they do. nuclear weapons know. or something right. like this. So it actually becomes a, these, these hacks actually become a national security risk, right. interestingly enough. Right. Uh, crazy angle on that. Um, Use a layer two, prevent nuclear war. Is that yeah. a fair take? <laughs> yeah, that might be a stretch, David. Is that a stretch? There's something there. Maybe there's a future article, David Hoffman article about this. Um, digital wallet maker Dynamic raises $7.5 million. Good to see a raise still coming through in the bear market. Anything mm -hmm. special about this one? Uh, yeah, this is uh, something that, uh, for those that pay attention to crypto Twitter, uh, Nick Carter and Castle Iron Ventures raised, uh, put money into this round, uh, an Ethereum wallet that has like digital identity features baked into it, and he got absolutely hounded by the Bitcoin community, uh, like the cyber hornets, just because like, from their culture, you don't touch anything that's not Bitcoin, and so Nick Carter, the blasphemous, sinning Nick Carter, uh, touched something Ethereum, uh, and now he's being like ex excommunicated from the cyber hornet culture. Um, just you know, a small peek into the window of Bitcoin maximalism. Oof. Did you read his post? Uh, Bitcoin maximalism is, is dead, is bankrupt. No, I, I haven't, but like that's I feel like post. I could already know it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's over it, man. He's over yeah. Bitcoin maximalism for sure. As am uh, I. As yeah. are you. Always, always Guys, have been. Um, still, even in a bear market, all right, mm -hmm. this is an incredible time to get a job in crypto because crypto is still hiring. There was a lot of money created and raised during the bull market and uh, good firms are still hiring. Here are a few firms. I will lead them out, uh, read them out and their job openings. Number one, Alliance Dow, CTO, 
Alliance Dow software engineer. Alliance Dow is also looking for an executive assistant. Go check that out. Otterspace is looking for a Solidity engineer. Abstract Ventures, a front-end engineer. Boolean Labs, looking for a founder and Web3 for their Web3 community analytics platform and a CEO. That's a big one. Begless was still looking at Twitter specialist resumes. Uh, Blockchain Capital wants a research engineer. Swell Network, a tech lead. Go check out all of those roles. There's on so the many more. Jobs board. There's so many more. That's the place. Bankless.pallet.com/jobs. Guys, we'll be right back. Come back with hot questions from the Bankless Nation, as well as some hot takes from Twitter. We'll get right back to that. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Question time. Questions from the nation. A tweet goes out of the Bankless Twitter account every single Wednesday, and it says, what question do you have for Ryan and David? Let us know. We'll talk about it. Every time I put this agenda together in the mornings, uh, I go and check out all the hot questions, and I grab some of the hottest ones that everyone seems to want asked. So we got two of them this week. Uh, Dan Scott says, does bridging Ether to a layer two have similar risks as bridging Ether to an alternative layer one like Solana or Avalanche? Ryan, you want to take this one? Uh, sure. I would say it depends. It depends on the bridge that you're using. Uh, but one benefit, if you're kind of like into visuals, one benefit that a rollup has versus an alternative layer one is it has a trustless, immutable bridge that cannot be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a bridge that works regardless of any security dependencies on um, the chain itself, on the layer two itself, right? So if, if you're picturing kind of bridges in your mind, uh, the other bridges um, routes around to layer twos and uh, to alternative layer ones, these bridges can be destroyed. These could be like, um, these can crumble, these can fall if some of the security assumptions on the other chain uh, go, go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But a rollup always preserves a bridge where you can always withdraw your funds back to Ethereum. And that is why a rollup is a rollup, because it doesn't have dependencies um, that are external to Ethereum for your security. So there's always that bridge. But mm -hmm. there are some bridges you can take to these chains that are also like multi-sig and don't have those same security assurances. Um, so you have to be sort of you know, careful and cautious as far as which bridge you're using to uh, transmit your funds onto the layer two. I think there's a decent amount of like semantics confusion that goes around here when we bridge from like one layer one like Ethereum to another layer one like Solana or Avalanche. There's no actual like bridge being built. Like there's no, there's, there's, it's not like it's something you go across and you transport your ether from one side to the other. You put your ether into one contract on Ethereum and then somebody else on the Solana or Avalanche or other layer one application is looking and observing that contract and say, oh, they submitted some ether here. I will mint them an IOU on the other side. So it's a little bit more like a teleporter. And like you have a central operator teleporting you with it with an IOU. And if the teleporter breaks, your IOU on the other side is worthless. With a layer two on Ethereum, there is something like like a canonical bridge, a cryptographic bridge that has much stronger assurances that that uh, doesn't actually have to operate on like what is usually a multi-sig. Uh, and so you have just an extra layer of risk removed because the layer two bridges, they don't have to make their own independent blockchain. They are giving up their independence in the name of security and having an actual, like it's still not an actual bridge because like, at the end of the day, the metaphor breaks down. 
but you have like a strong cryptographic assurances that the bridge will always be there. And if the bridge isn't there, then the whole network's not there. So like Solana can go up and, and stay up. Ethereum can go up and stay up and that bridge can go down. But on a, on a layer two, if the bridge goes down, the whole network is going down, right? And so the network, the layer two network on Ethereum cannot stay up while the bridge is down. That doesn't work. Uh, and so there's always a, a bridge of last resort right. on the L2s. Mm -hmm. And so it's less risky right. is, I guess, the short answer right. um, bridging to a, a layer, layer two. And that is uh, essentially the point. Um, okay, so here's another question for us, David. What are some of the best dApps that you can recommend to help a beginner start living a crypto native life? A bankless life, David. What do you recommend? Yeah, I put some of my, my some of my favorites down. First, you know, if you're going to go into the world of the bankless nation, if you're going to go into the metaverse, you need a name. You need you need your new metaverse name, and so you got to go get an ENS name. So go like just like how you when you sign into Instagram, sign into Twitter, whatever, and you you make a new handle. When you're going into the metaverse, you need an ENS name. So go get an porno. ENS name. Porno. Somebody got porno. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that one. Um, so once you get your metaverse name, uh, I, I think the next coolest thing you can do is you can take some of your ether, you can put it into MakerDAO, and you can literally mint money. That is the cool thing about crypto. You can mint money. Uh, and then you can take that money, like put one ether into MakerDAO, like make sure you're measuring the gas fees, put uh, one ether into MakerDAO, mint some DAI, put that die on a layer two, and then you've done like some really cool stuff. And I, that's what I would say where I would start with. I, I think that's great. And I, I think that like the path to going bankless is like, number one, you have to start taking custody of your own keys, mm. right? So it's the move from an exchange to actually taking custody of your keys, whether you're doing that in a smart contract wallet, like an Argent or something, a hardware device like Ledger, or for small bits of money, maybe MetaMask, something like that. You, you have to go through that step. But once you're on the other side of that, I think about still like the money verbs that we've talked about, you know, so often, like what are the things you want to do with your financial life in, in a typical banking system? Well, one thing you want to do is like save your money and invest. And I can think of no better investment, my friend, and saving mechanism for the long run. It's going to be volatile in USD and ups and down than something like ETH. Okay. And maybe after that, a basket of some other tokens, but you definitely want to have ETH. Uh, that you don't spend, all right? You also need some ETH for gas, but ETH that you don't spend. So that's like a store of value type use case. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that um, payment use case, stable coins are amazing. Dude, I, I could send money to anyone in the world right. for like fractions of a penny, okay? And like, it can be any amount of money. This is so freeing and so cool. And it's something that you should learn how to do, whether you're using USDC or DAI, having some stable coins in your crypto reserves uh, is is kind of cool. Then you can use something like Pool Together, which is like a, a fun DeFi savings type tool. It's a really interesting starter application in DeFi. Go check that out. Pool Together, and you can deposit your funds, actually save your money. They have a lottery. It's called the No Loss Lottery. They have a system that you know rewards uh, various people based on the pool size. It's really cool. Just check it out. It's a good first app. Uh, if you're lending and borrowing, Ave is fantastic. And then uh, trading, of course, like go check out Uniswap. So we got storing value, basic payments, savings, lending, and trading. And that's a good place to start because you just knocked off like, you know, five of the different money verbs that you're going to need for a crypto native bankless life. From there, you can do all sorts of other things, but that's where I would start. Um, David, let's get to some takes of the week, man. Takes of the week. So let's do uh, it. here's a take from you, my friend. This mm -hmm. is all about C5 versus DeFi. 
Mm -hmm. I say, CFI lenders are blowing up specifically due to the properties of centralization. They're black boxes. You got to trust them to withdraw your assets. And they're subject to human folly, human decision making. Not only now do DeFi lenders have fewer competitors because like a few of them have blown up, but their competitive edge is now proven and legitimized. CFI is fragile and unstable. DeFi is robust and stable. Uh, and so I, I think it's that last line. DeFi has fewer competitors because all the CFI things blew up. They blew up because of the properties of centralization in the first place. So now, like, not only do they have less com competition, but their differentiation is justified and proven out in the market. And I think that's awesome. I totally agree with you. And you know, I think another lens on this, this is uh, something I tweeted out, is for regulators. And I said mm -hmm. this, regulators around the world should be watching DeFi protocols closely to congratulate them, mm -hmm. all right? Because DeFi provided a fair, orderly, and transparent uh, drawdown during the 70 to 90% downturn we've just seen. Well, the D its CeFi peers went bust. You want to regulate crypto? DeFi is crypto regulation. Self-regulation. A commenter on this tweet said, yeah, that's effectively what a smart contract is. It's regulations written into code. Yes, that's what we're that's doing. That's the whole point. The EVM <laughs> is the regulator for DeFi. We we are like that. That's the whole thing that, that makes it what it is. Exactly. Smart contracts are simply self-regulating and self-enforcing themselves. And this is where regulators can lend a hand is maybe they need some smart contract auditors mm -hmm. on their team. Maybe they want right. to spin up some transparency dashboards. Right. This is yes. where DeFi can use your help, not uh, to say that like, we're getting rid of all DeFi. Anyway, uh, don't know how many regulators listen to Bankless, but that's our message to them. Here's another take, David, from Aubrey. What's she saying? Yeah, Aubrey, the first time we got an Aubrey take in here, she goes, SBF will own everything and you'll be happy. <laughs> Why is she saying this? <laughs> because SPF is like buying up everything. He's like the lender of last resort. He's like trying to buy FTX. Uh, they provide a credit window for a bunch of other things. SPF and like Alameda and all these people that like were capitalized during the, the, the bull market and like had a lot of stables are now like looking at some pretty sweet deals right now. So I don't think this is a fair tweet, David, because CZ is going to own at least some of this too. Yeah, CZ. CZ Not CZ just too. SPF. CZ too. <laughs> <laughs> we're having CZ right. on the podcast tomorrow, so mm -hmm. we're going to ask him about the CZ of Binance, of course. Is uh, also today, for the listeners, actually, it's probably going on right now as you listen to it. Oh, yeah. true. Wow. Okay. Stop I listening to the roll-up. I really <laughs> like this back. take. I really like this take. This is a kind of a snarky way that also is really educational as to how optimistic roll-ups work. Uh, Kobe Gurkam says, the security of optimistic roll-ups is based on the fact that people will, with great zeal, strive to prove that somebody is wrong on the internet. This is how a fraud proof works. Uh, if you do something fraudulent in, uh, in an optimistic rollup, you can get away with it, but the way that security of these optimistic rollups work is like as soon as somebody's doing something fraudulent, somebody's out there gonna prove that. And so security of optimistic rollups based on the fact that the internet people like to prove that other people are wrong. Uh, and if they do, they get rewarded. Uh, so that is <laughs> a little quick lesson in how optimistic rollups are, are secured. Everyone becomes an auditor. Right. That's the model we're mm -hmm. moving towards. This is a take from Bartek.eth. Uh, being an Ethereum rollup is like having the strongest army in the world securing your estate. Becoming Cosmos Chain, uh, you are now protected by your token holders. Unless you use interchain security, an upcoming feature, in which case, which case you pay atom holders for protection. I think this is probably background commentary on DYDX's move certainly, from certainly. a Starkware rollup to, um, to its own app chain. And I know you and I commented on this after the show. 
we have a ton of respect for Antonio as a builder. Um, he's built something phenomenal with DYDX. But it also seems like it's going to be a lot of work for them to spill, spin up everything necessary right. for a layer one chain. And kind of the analogy to me is like, you want to start a butcher shop, and so you're founding a country in order right. to do that. Right. I was like, well, why not just park your butcher shop in a country that already exists? Because then you On don't need to spin up your yeah. own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, military and tax code system and money system and monetary policy and like defense network and legal, like it seems like a lot less work. And I think it is. And so um, this is a comment on that. I, I do think that there's obviously room for all sorts of chains to spin up, but what they are spinning up is um, sophisticated nation state type of economies. And um, I think that's more difficult to do than some people assume. I think that's exactly right. And I think that is the loss of the takes. Ryan, should we get into what, what we're you, excited about? Yeah, what, what, what are you excited about? What are you bullish on? Do you see this like awesome brick background behind me, Ryan? I, I, I do, I do, it's amazing. It looks like you got a ton of room there. Right, yeah, so like look at all, look at all this space uh, and like my desk is in the middle of this space. Let's see if I can zoom out. Uh, it starts off as a blank brick background, but it's gonna, okay. it's gonna change in the future, Ryan. There's, and I'm not just Whoa. talking about me putting up my NFTs on the wall. I'm that's what people are envisioning. I'm sure, How's it going to change? I'm sure that's gonna, what they're envisioning. Uh, it's going to change. Bankless Studio is going to become a thing. Uh, I got some plans. I got some plans. Live, st live studio for live podcasts. That's, that's right. what you're talking about, right? Yes. This is what this means. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I did a show with um, Julia from Orca not too long ago. And like, we were very awkwardly like, on the same couch as I interviewed her. And then, and then I looked at the YouTube comments. I was like, well, that needs to change. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the change. Bankless Studio. It's going to be awesome, man. Yeah. I, uh, I'm excited to come up there one time with yeah. you. Yeah. Maybe, I'll, we'll do your layers. I'll here. get you on a... No, I was going to say, I want to get you on a layer zero. That's my first. podcast, bro. <laughs> I know, but I got to interview. Someone's, who's going to interview you? You know, that's let a good Anthony Sassano interview you for layer zero? It's got to be me. Yeah, it's gotta, it, it, yeah that's right. That's right. <laughs> Ryan, what are you excited about? Um, I'm excited, I guess, about the uh, overconfidence of bears right now. <laughs> um, he, here's something I tweeted out. When prices go up too fast, people get dumb. Of course, that's true. But when prices go down too fast, people also get dumb. And I'm seeing a lot of the dumb sentiment now, David. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, just this morning, it was like cruising around Reddit. The amount of threads, this was like an r slash gaming of like, NFTs were the dumbest idea ever. Ha ha, crypto bros, get wrecked, you guys suck. Uh, crypto's so useless, it's a scam. All of this noise is going on. And like, detractors and critic critics are absolutely gleeful, right? And what they don't know is like, we've already been through this like three or four times. Exact same people, not the same people necessarily, exact same sentiment, maybe different set of actors. Crypto is dead. Uh, and um, I, I think the overconfidence of the bears actually makes me um, optimistic yeah. that we are closing in on a potential bottom. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, this could still last a very long time. We're still talking uh, months potentially years. I don't know how long it's going to last, but um, I'm starting to, to, to hear that like overconfidence that feels very much and sounds very much like bottom type of talk. And uh, I think it'll persist for a while, but it's actually making me bullish 
to hear these same the same patterns that we've seen so many times in crypto start to play out in the sentiment right now. So, so just curious, uh, when prices go up too fast, people get dumb. When pr prices go down too fast, people also get dumb. In what scenario do people not get dumb? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think when like there is a sweet spot yeah. of sober time. Do you know like don't you feel like this in every every market? Like the sweet spot was probably for me for this this cycle around was probably like sometime 2020, the, early 2020. DeFi especially. summer. Yep, and I think in late 2019 into 2020, I feel like we had six months or so, maybe nine months of just the sweet spot mm. where things were happening, the builders were building, the market sentiment was like rational. So the end of the, it, uh, the, end of the bear market. Mm-hmm, right. basically. You just, and then that's the sweet spot. And then I start to hate my life again. Like I hate my life. I hate my life now when things are like irrationally bearish right. and everyone's like, you're such an idiot. You're such a, mo right. you have a crypto podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also hate like the market, uh, I don't know, three months ago, six months ago, when you're like, um, you know, this Terra thing might not be sustainable. And everyone's like, you loser, you're so dumb. You ETH maxi. Like, I hate that side of it too. So we only get rest during like this, this uh, eight month period, I don't know, six to nine month period, maybe in between these two cycles. And that's when the market is less dumb. I think I talked that's how I experience it. I think I talked about this uh, last week with uh, Anthony when you were on your little AI vacation. Um, <laughs> uh, but like my, my mom uh, would text me every now and then saying, hey, I met up with like Linda. She said like, hey, how, how's Dave doing? Is Dave doing all right during the crypto crash? And like, I've gotten these texts like three times. Oh, like, no. is, is, David, really? is David okay? Like, <laughs> and they know I've been in crypto since 2017. I'm like, can you guys please go look at the chart, please? <laughs> I tell my mom, like, hey, I'm, I'm hiring a bank list if they're looking look at, at a chart. <laughs> well, no, tell, tell the, those people to go look at the chart, like, either at $1,000. Anyways, um, but just like, yeah, it's just like so frustrating. It's like, they don't really ask if I'm doing okay when Ether is at $4,000. Right. I didn't hear anything then. Mom, David's mom, don't be concerned about David until ETH is like double digit, okay? Then you can start right. sending that, phone that, calls then, and getting Then concerned. I might not be okay at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be okay. <laughs> well, Bankless listener, we think you're going to be okay. This is all going to be okay. Ryan, you said at the end of 2019, start of 2020 was when you felt like most rational and like just the best in the crypto market. Yeah. Like that was the era in crypto. And I was thinking about this earlier. That was the era in crypto where all the people that stuck around during the bear market, that's when all the people were like, yo, wait, the bull market, it's on. That, that's what happens next. Like people yeah. that stuck around during the bear market, they identified that the bull market was started in April of 2020. Like we knew this, we, they, everyone had the conviction like, yes, the mobile market's back on, like it's on baby. Uh, and the only way that you were able to know that was if you rode through the bear market. And so the people that rode through the bear market were able to ride the bull market from Genesis at, in like April of 2020 when Ether was two to $300, Bitcoin was like $6,000, $7,000. Uh, and then they rode those things like before, and then and then retail figured out that the bull market was on sometime in like middle of 2021. So if you ride through the bear market, you have a one year head start in a bull market that generally only lasts about two years. So like that's your alpha, yeah. that's your advantage. It's exactly where you want to be. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and that is the reason you don't leave mm -hmm. during times like this when prices are down. The reason you stay uh, is exactly for that reason. Totally. Um, all right, David, let's get to the meme of the week. What are we looking at on the screen? 
I'm seeing a whole bunch of uh, bulls here. <laughs> this is a. These look like sad bulls, though. This is a a, a uh, what are these called? The Dungeons and Dragons like disposition charts or whatever. So you got like lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good. You know, lawful evil, neutral evil, chaotic evil. So for the listeners, podcast listeners, sorry, this is gonna be kind of hard to explain. In the lawful good corner, we got good old USDC being the lawful good. Like everyone likes these USDC. These are all stable coins. These are all stable right? coins. Every single stable coin. Yeah. Uh, in the neutral good. Top, top center, we got die. it's neutral, it's one dollar, it's good. And we also have chaotic good for Frax, the algorithmic, 85% backed algorithmic stablecoin that has uh, admirably held its peg, uh, nothing wrong there. Coming up in the neutral camp, we got the lawful neutral of the actual US dollar, the fiat in your <laughs> bank account, the cash in your wallet. Uh, in the true neutral corner, we have the, the Curve 3 pool, the Tether, Die, USEC, Curve 3 pool, and the bull, every single one of these has a bull that's colored, the color of the stable coin, and this bull happens to be both green for USEC, uh, uh, excuse, excuse me, gr blue for USEC, green for Tether, and yellow for Die. So true neutral is the, is the Curve 3 pool. Uh, chaotic neutral, we got MIM. Didn't that one go to zero? I don't know. I, not pretty yet. I don't, yeah, not, did not, it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then in the in the evil row, we got the lawful either, which which is e evil, which is tether. It's it's lawful because it's actually one dollar redeemable for one dollar, but it's evil because it's a black box. Uh, we got the neutral evil, which is US, USDD, the the Terra fork on Tron that somehow is maintaining its peg. Uh, and then we also have chaotic evil in the bottom right corner, which is UST Terra USD, with also if you notice Ryan Mike Novogratz wolf tattoo on the on the arm. It's <laughs> <laughs> crazy, man. Good I meme. definitely agree Good with the, the the bottom row. I mm -hmm. think. And uh, particularly the, the chaotic evil being UST, but also this Tron stablecoin, man. Like, that's got to be next to go. Yeah. Right? Like, like Justin Sun, I can't believe the, the audacity of this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spin up a stablecoin a month before UST goes, and it's going to be algo backed, same kind of mechanism right. as Luna UST. And, like, like, that is not okay. And if mm -hmm. you're in that, like, be very, very right. careful. Yeah, it's a I game of chicken. Probably not listening to Bankless, though. Yeah, that's probably true. I saw I saw a post that talked about how Justin Sun had plenty of capital to backstop backstop the USDD depegging and depeg down to ninety four cents, but he wanted it to depeg more so he could buy it at like a cheaper discount. <laughs> so dumb. This is terrible. Justin Sun as a central banker. No, yeah. thank you. Right. Give me give me ETH. Give me Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, guys, of course, none of this has been financial advice. It never is. Crypto is risky. So is ETH. So is Bitcoin. So is all of it. You could lose what you put in, definitely. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. So Rocket ship, get on board. So why is. <laughs>